Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 29 of the Great Divide podcast. This is it, our final installment of the Why the Long Face trilogy. So as usual, we're not going to waste your time. We're going to jump right into the discussion where we left off last time, and that is talking about the song Take You to the Moon. Okay, Take You to the Moon. Now, some people might think, based on some of the comments I've made on this album so far, that... Well, there's no way that I'll like this one because it's definitely not a very big country-esque song, but uh, you would be wrong in that assumption. This is, without a doubt, one of my favorite songs on the album. It's This is an incredibly strong song in every respect, and, and this really gets back to... It, it's not that I just wanted Big Country to go back and do Fields of Fire Part 2 or something like that. I, I'm totally up with them changing and, and altering their sound, but it's got to feel it's got to feel legitimate to me. It's got to feel natural to me. And some of those changes just never really felt natural, but this is a, this is an exception. This is a song that's definitely not in the vein of traditional big country. This is not something that would sit comfortably on the first three albums by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's obviously a precursor to the type of approach Stewart would be taking from this point forward. He was getting into the, into more of the country feel he was getting that Nashville uh, influence, and obviously you can hear that on this song from the very opening with those those straight out of uh, old school country music guitar riffs. And you might probably when I, I can't remember the first time I heard this, what my reaction was, but I I would imagine that probably I was a little nervous with those first few riffs, but it wasn't long before I was completely sold on this song. This is just a beautiful and gut-wrenching song for me it's this is the song that i think stewart's vocals shine the most throughout this album i think he sings this with incredible emotion incredible conviction and and just an incredibly uh it's just an incredible job on a technical scale as well because he sings in a lot of different registers here he really gets really gets up there he gets some high notes going he sings kind of not really soft throughout the song but he's got throughout the verses he's singing in a more mellower key but it just sounds so beautiful and rough and and real and you can feel the guy's pain and pain is what this song is really about and it's it's the same subject that he's covered before throughout a lot of the songs on this album and even going back to the buffalo skinners the breakup of a relationship this is the song that I think should have been the first single. The only thing that, that would go against it is that it's a little bit long. It's maybe even more than a little bit long. It's it's almost five minutes long, which is way too long for a single. But uh, Lee, Lee Waterton, if you're out there anywhere, we could have used you to do a single edit of this song because I think it probably could have could have undergone a little bit of editing and, and, and really been an interesting single. And I think this song would have played really, really well on radio because – I know in the UK that there is a, a love for country music to some degree, and it almost to the point where sometimes in America, especially at that time, there was a real great divide, pardon the pun, between people who love country music and rock music. I think there was – I could be wrong about this. This is just me basing assumptions on what I've seen. You people in the UK can correct me, but I, I get the feeling that country music was a little bit more respected over there by people who also liked rock music. And and with with people like Radio One complaining about you Dreamer saying it sounded too much like Big Country, well, they certainly couldn't make that criticism about this song. And I think this song would have just really blown people away. I really do. I think this was a, a huge missed opportunity for the band. Um, 
they sh- they should have put this song out. It's so much better than I'm than I'm not ashamed. Now I've already said you dreamer is my number one song on the album, and it is because I think it's the most big country sounding song. I think it's it's an incredibly powerful song, and I I thought about technical types of things too when I was ranking these. But if I had to rank from a tradi- from solely an emotional standpoint, this song would be my number one. Where it stands, it's my number two. Um, but emotionally, this song does a lot more for me than You Dreamer does. Uh, I'll start with the music, and I'm, I, I know I've already said a lot, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about this. But the thing that I really love about this song musically, it's got the most – and it's something that Big Country has always done so well, better than just about anyone that I can think of. It's got the most beautiful, clean guitar sound that goes through it. And it's – the great thing that about – that is – the great thing about Big Country's clean guitar sounds is they don't sound wimpy. They never sound um, – you know, like they're not strong. They're still very strong sounding guitars, even though they're not distorted guitars. They've got a, a punch to them, and that works so beautifully in this song. And then we, we've we got just some incredible lead guitar playing from Stewart in this song, too. I think the solo in this song is just amazing. It's fantastic. And I love the verses. I love the, the groove that Tony and Mark are laying down in the, throughout the verses of, the, of this song. And the uh, once we get to the chorus as well, we've got just some just a great hummable chorus that you can really sing along to and you can really relate to. Just about anyone can relate, I think, to the messages of this song because we've all been more than likely through some kind of a breakup in our lives. And when you when you think about what Stewart's life was like and and uh, what he must have been going through at the time some of these lines really uh, really connect I mean if absence makes the heart grow fond why does my presence seem so wrong if I am here and you are gone I wonder what it is I've done that to me always struck me as obviously Stewart lived a lot of his life on the road so he didn't see his wife as often as he would have liked to and you would think and he would think that when he returns from a tour or when he returns from a, an extended period of time away, he'll be met with, you know, exuberant affection and, and, and some kind of great affection from the person he's been away from for so long. But this, this line kind of suggests that maybe he's getting back from a tour and there's something strange that's going on. There's some chemistry that's not right. And we've all been there. We've all been there in a, in a relationship where you know something's wrong, but you're afraid to – to broach subject the other person but you just know that it's there and and that's just such a beautiful way of of capturing that feeling and i think those lyrics are just really powerful you've got a lot of lines like that that really paint the picture of this relationship that's falling apart and and even things like um crying never makes no sense when too much has gone on for it to ever be coincidence that often that line almost often and this is just conjecture in me assuming or wondering, but it almost always seemed to suggest maybe something going on, like an extramarital affair or something, because you often get the feeling or you often hear when these types of things happen, the other person will say, or one person will say, I I feel this way and this has happened and is making me question your, your faithfulness. And the the other person will often say, well, it's just a coincidence. It's what you saw was just a coincidence. It has nothing to do with anything. And that, that line almost, 
always kind of referred back to that feeling. He's saying too much has happened for this to be a coincidence. So I don't know. That's just how I always took it. Um, the chorus, who's going to take you to the moon, who's going to take you to the stars. I, I, I always did have a little bit of a, of a problem figuring out exactly what he meant by that. But the way that I kind of came to view it is um, he's saying that if we break up, you know, who's going to who's going to take you to the moon? Who's going to show you these? Who's going to do all the wonderful things for you that I want to do for you? And then he says, but if I take you to the moon, will you come back the way you are? Almost as if if we give it another shot and I'm and I do for you what you want me to do for you, will it will it make a difference? Will you love me again or will you be the way you are now where I can tell that you have fallen out of love with me? So that's kind of how I always took that line. Um, it's a pretty straightforward song. I think it's just a powerhouse of a song. It's um, it's a great example of big country really doing something different but maintaining what makes them so great. It's a shame the song was never really played live. I think it would have been a great great tune to play live. Maybe it was too painful to play. I don't know, but he certainly played other songs that that probably could have been considered too painful. But um, you got to give it to Stewart through a song like this and through a lot of others. He he has had he's willing to open himself up and and basically make himself bleed for for the sake of a song. And it's pretty obvious to see that that's what he's done here. And I think even though it's incredibly sad. The, the song is all the better for it. And it's one of those songs, one of the few songs on this album that really, to me, this song stands shoulders above most of the songs on this album. And it's one of the few that I really turn to a lot and, and really want to listen to. And I think really stands up proudly with the best things that Stewart has ever written. So that's my take on it. For me, it's number two. Okay. So all that's left for me to say is my rating. I think I, I think I had eight points and you covered all of them already. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Obviously, no, that's fine. But obviously, I don't feel exactly the same you did, even though I had the same examples. But uh, the interesting thing is that there are a couple of relationship songs on Wide Long Face, a few, um, and I feel very autobiographical. And this is definitely one of them. Uh, if you look at them in a chronological sense. I feel this is the last one. I feel some of them feel like they are written as things are going wrong. This is definitely after the breakup has happened. So this yeah. is uh, chronologically kind of the last hurrah. It's happened and he's dealing with it. And there's no longer a um, sort of what will we do and uh, how can you do this to me? It, that's past. Now it's aftermath. Aftermath City. That's the song. And... Um, you kind of see him driving around in the beginning, and I had the same examples as you, if my absence, you know, why does my presence feel so wrong, all that stuff. And I've, I have the same takes. I think we don't really disagree with with what this song is about and what he means when he says these things. Um, these are very depressing lyrics, but they're beautiful written. And if anything, they are perhaps a bit too well written, because they do manage to evoke that mood of mixed emotions and loneliness and sadness. Uh when you break up from someone that you may still care for, but you can't have that relationship with them any longer. And in fact, that relationship is over, but you can't just flick a switch. You have to deal with it. And sometimes you deal with it for a while after. So um, that's definitely what this song is about. And musically, the song is very nice. It's definitely, like you said, the one that leans closer to what where Stuart was heading. And a lot of people describe why the long face as a stepping stone between Skinner's and Damascus. I don't really see that, but this song might be. I think the rest of the album, no. But this song, yeah, I see that. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, I I don't feel as strong as you in some respects, and that's purely musically. I think lyrically, I think we quite agree. This is a standout song. I think a lot of the music is uh, is good. I think the verses are the strongest bits, and then there's a bridge which is okay, and a chorus that is I'm afraid to say snooze city. <laughs> I I really don't think that's good musically. I think that it. It it just gets too much. It's kind of like watching the country music awards. It's it's too much, and I I do accept quite a lot of styles from big country. I think more than the average fan. I embrace a lot of stuff, but this is borderline pushing it uh, for me in in that regards. And uh, I don't hold it strongly against the song. I think it's okay, but in terms of this album and ranking. Uh, that's what makes it fall in the lower half. But I do appreciate the song. I've never actually taken out the disc to listen to it. It's not that type of song for me. But I do appreciate it. I never skip it. I always listen to it. So that's uh, that's that's something I say. There's plenty of songs I skip. This is not one of the ones I skip. But unlike a lot of the songs on this album, I've never really... It's never hit me personally. I don't really relate to it. But uh, it's one I can enjoy when it happens to come on. So I think I'll keep it short and sweet because I, I have a lot to say on the next one. So <laughs> I write I write this as eleven. You are deranged and insane. But okay. It it, it had to come sooner or later. <laughs> Far from me to you. I've been wondering quite a bit about how to approach this song and. There really is no way of talking about how I feel about it without talking about the personal significance it has to me. So after some deliberation, I decided to get a little personal. So this is a little bit about me. I have been happily married to Jen for, um, it will be 16 years coming up this summer. And most people will know that I am Norwegian. I live in Norway. Jen is American. And I first met her while visiting common friends in the U.S. over a summer. So we got to meet and we were instant friends and got on so well I ended up spending quite some time visiting with her too for a month and a half before eventually returning. And what we find during that time was very quickly we were becoming close and we both kind of felt like hmm, this, uh, this is a bit serious here. Sometimes you meet someone and you just know. You just know. Uh, the problem, of course, was that I had to go home and not just go home, but far away home. And after some time, she would finally visit me in Norway. And the time apart had strengthened our bond, not weakened it. And that's when you need to start figuring out what to do. A long distance relationship is not really sustainable. So we had to decide whether we were serious about this. And if yes, which the answer clearly was, that would mean that one of us had to move. And the notion of moving together can be nice and sweet, romantic, all of that. But in our case, where there is such a significant distance, once you start thinking about moving together, it almost immediately becomes all about the practical challenges. And they aren't insignificant in these cases. So while all of these plans are being made and before things are final, there is a period where you kind of have to stay in that long distance relationship. And in our case, that period lasted some eight or nine months. And that wasn't easy. I mean, imagine being without your significant other for that amount of time. Uh, Apart 
from the physical separation, you don't see each other. There's all kinds of practicalities to work through on each end. The bureaucracy, the various permits, the practicalities and everything, including the doubts and all kinds of strange thoughts that will pop into your head. Especially late at night when the odd doubt will creep in. You wonder if you're meant to get there in the end. Nothing feels certain. You wonder if it's worth it because it's very hard. And this song, Far From Me To You, is not just the theme song for that period with this challenge, but also each and every word of it rings true to me because they could come from me. They could come from the depths of my soul and they remind me of exactly what I was thinking as I was going through it. So this is definitely much more than just a great song. It's also a snapshot of a very unique time in my life that I don't particularly want to relive, but which totally ended up being worth it. And it it ended well. And despite the song reminding me of a time where I don't really want to go back to it, it doesn't bring up anything bad. It brings back that comfort that it gave me. Fortunately, otherwise I probably couldn't listen to it. So uh, looking back at the song as it starts, the singer is dreaming of the place where the other person is. So right off the bat, you have somewhere there are orange trees, somewhere skies are blue, somewhere is a bridge across the world from me to you. This is the daydreaming. There's a lot of that going on too in that situation. But ultimately, and especially in the darkest sky or the darkest hour, as the song mentions, uh, doubt will creep in and the frustrations of being separated and uh, they are felt much stronger because as he says, tonight it seems so far from me to you. Basically, you are not here with me, you are so far away. And to me, those are not just words. I remember that feeling very well and that was a long, long time when that was my everyday life. But what I really like is how the song starts at the worst place with the distance and the separation and the angst. And it totally ends up somewhere much, much better. So that makes this an optimistic song. To begin with, it's tonight it seems so far from me to you. And that's how it goes, the first part of the song. But towards the end of the song, it's it doesn't seem so far from me to you. So in the process of the song, uh, as it says, love's come shining through and then it doesn't seem so far. And again, I relate so intensely to that sentiment that it scares me. And that love would come shining through for me whenever I got a letter, whenever we spoke on the phone, whenever we were able to connect online, which I had to do from work, by the way, because I didn't have a computer back then. <laughs> so in the evenings, um, yeah, I have to sit there in the evenings and just wait. And when we did manage to connect, that feeling of distance immediately went away, just like in the song. So another interesting thing in the song is that there is a definite turning point you can point at in the song when things get better. And that is the bridge section, which lyrically almost could look totally throwaway, where he sings. This is not throwaway to me. I've been that guy. So those words are actually me either waiting by the computer, waiting for that call. I've turned up at the pre-range time, usually a little early, and I will say, come on, I'm sitting here, I'm calling, I'm waiting, can you hear me? Kind of like in the song, exactly like in the song. So just like the song, there is the singer and me waiting impatiently to connect with this other person. And even the phrase, I'm awake for you, makes me smile because I know what that means to me. It it would often be late at night, my time, uh, daytime in the US, but I would sit at work, not going home until we actually connected. I would say, come on, I'm awake for you. I haven't gone home yet. I haven't gone to bed yet. So it would be a thing. 
And I've seen comments in the past where people would dismiss this middle section. And I understand that. It's not like the lyrics Stuart would write that is most poetic. But to me, it makes total sense. It totally fits for me. And it helps make this song that much more authentic in terms of representing my own experience. So it's brilliant from that perspective. And uh, like I've said, the tone changes after that section. Because that is when the tonight it feels so far from me to you changes to it doesn't seem so far from me to you. They managed to connect and it really lifted him. And um, it's not like all is immediately better. There is a darkness there, typically enough for Stuart, but the darkness is driven away by love. And I quote, listening to the darkness to a voice I call my own, shameful that my emptiness is turning me to stone. In the silence of the night, love comes shining through and it doesn't seem so far from me to you. And I cannot even begin to say how much comfort lines like these would give me during those times. So this song has a very special meaning. It brings me right back. So it's genuinely a very personal song to me. Uh, but I'll take a step back for myself now. And in terms of a physical distance, uh, it's also possible that the song could refer to emotional distance. Like two people could sit next to each other on a couch, but still feel very apart, far apart. And that would almost fill the... That would almost fit the bill better in terms of the other themes on the album of relationships breaking up, except that this song goes from negativity to positivity. That's very clear in the process of this song. So if the song is about that, it definitely goes a bit against the other songs in that respect. Uh, so I spent a lot of time on this song, but before I hand totally over to you, I just want to touch very briefly on the song from a musical perspective. And I think the song has an almost perfect buildup. I really like how Mark plays a very nice drum part in the early part of the song. And the early part of the first verse is almost a bit tentatively. And then 30 seconds or so into the song, he would dig more into it and, and kick in. And the guitars have a similar thing where they increase the build up from open string picking to more power chords that come in in the second verse. And I really love how the guitars mesh mesh together in the song and Tony lets loose halfway into it especially in the tell me can you hear me come on and Tony just kicks in <laughs> so there's always like they have this extra gear throughout the song it keeps building and towards the end it has such a momentum and uh, the guitar solo as well in the at the halfway point it's very old school big country in its approach it's fantastic It's a song of immense comfort and it really speaks about a situation I hope most people don't have to go through to the extent I did because that was tough but much like uh, the song it ended well and all's well that ends well and that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> yeah I'm done and uh, I'm sorry if my story bored anyone uh, I apologize but I couldn't possibly talk about this song without mentioning the significance it has to me I mean they are very much in intertwined no you have to that's and that's great because um I, I have a very different take well I have a different take on the song but it this just gets back to I'm I'm sure Stuart would be happy with this discussion because he and any songwriter worth anything will often say that because you know when Stuart was asked about it, to describe what his songs were about, he never liked to, to pin himself down, and he said that as much because he wanted the listener to, to figure out what it meant to themselves and to their own life. So clearly it had that special meaning to you for, pers for those personal reasons, um, which is great. 
And you know, I had a similar situation with uh, with my wife, but she didn't have to move nearly as far as as you, as Jen did, or or develop mm-hmm. a whole new culture, that kind of thing either. So I can, but I can relate to some degree to what you're saying. Um, so that's yeah, that's a great story. Um, I feel very good about this song too. I, I really like this song, and certainly I don't feel as strongly about it as you do. Um, but for me, this song was always, to me, it was clearly Stewart's really religious song, and. To me, this song lyrically was not him talking to a person, but was him talking to God or to Jesus or to whoever he believed in, which I I believe was Jesus as as I got to know him a little bit more toward the end and and dealt with – and you've already read his comment about being interested in Christianity. I know he was really into that, into the origins of it and – some with some emails that I exchanged. I know he exchanged with other people too. He he was very into that and and everything. So, I think this is about his Christian faith. That's that's how it always struck me and him dealing with that. Um, it 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 always gave me a sense of um, he, him just being in a in a room by himself, him feeling empty inside, and just really trying to find God somewhere, trying to feel like. God was there for him, and he couldn't feel it. He couldn't sense God's presence. And then at his darkest moment, something would happen to him and or something would click inside of him, and he could feel that he was close to God or he was close to Christ or whoever it was that he's singing about. Um, so th- that's how I always took this song, especially when he's saying things like uh, listening in the darkness to a voice I call my own, shameful that my emptiness is turning me to stone. In the silence of the night, your love comes shining through, and it doesn't seem so far from me to you. I mean, I think the human condition, whether you're a religious person or whether you're not a religious person, and I've kind of gone through both extremes in my life, um, but uh, you're always out there searching and, and wondering, is there something – is there someone else? And if there is, are they listening to me? Can they hear me? And especially if you're like really interested in trying to find out those answers for yourself, there's, there's kind of a desperation to that sometimes where – you just feel so alone in life and and you feel like you're struggling so hard to figure out what it means and if if your life has any worth or value and you're just praying sometimes people will talk about this just saying you know god are you there i, I don't feel like you're there or is there someone out there is there anyone out there and that's kind of how how i always took this song like stuart just going through periods in his life where he just didn't feel close to god he didn't feel close to that um spiritual relationship that he wants to have. I mean, he kind of alludes to that when he's talking about his emptiness, turning him to stone and he can't feel the things that he wants to feel. And, and he feels so far away from any kind of spiritual connection. And that that's kind of what I get from the lyrics is that he, when he's at his darkest moment and he's making these pleas, I mean, the, the voice that he lists, that he hears in the darkness that he calls his own, I was kind of thought of him praying aloud to himself or to the darkness, just, kind of saying that thing is there anyone out there can you hear me i need help can someone help me and this the 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 uplifting nature of this song in stewart from stewart's perspective i always thought of as him getting an answer to that plea where he he felt something inside of him give him some comfort or some some feeling that yes i'm here i care about you and he feels like the love of god or or whatever comes through and he can he can feel it so that's kind of what i how i've always taken this song and i think when you look at stewart's 
as we've said, his trajectory through life and the things that he was going through and things he was really getting more interested in, he really gets more and more and more interested in religion at this point forward. And, he, and there was always a tone of it into his music, but it really starts coming through a little bit on on Skinner's and then especially in this album and then especially on Driving to Damascus and, and even in the Raphael's. So I think this is one of the first real overt references to his – whatever his version of Christianity was, I think – that's how I always viewed this song. Um, musically, musically, I never really – the song always kind of had a, a little bit too much of a sing-songy feel to me in the beginning, like uh, almost like a nursery rhyme-ish quality to it in those verses. And and that it wasn't something that was terrible to me, but it was something that kind of kept me at arm's length a little bit from really embracing the song. But as you say, once it kicks in, I always really connected with it more and, and – uh, Again, this was a song that really doesn't have any kind of distorted, hard-edged guitars in it, except for the solo. Most of the, the guitars are that clean, cutting, beautiful, clean guitar sound, and it, it works really well and interestingly in this song. Um, so yeah, this is one of my favorites on the album. I think it's definitely one of the better songs on the album. Um, was never a gigantic fan of the verses, but I really do like the rest of it quite a bit. And as you say, the guitar solo is a really shining moment for Stewart. And I think Stewart's guitar playing on this album from a solo perspective is really, really good throughout. Really excellent. Um, it might not always be that Celtic sound that I want or wanted, but still, it's still there and it's still great. And this is a great example of, of, as you say, a great hummable guitar solo. That's almost like its own little song in its own right. And to me, the best guitar solos are always that they're always, it doesn't really matter if they're playing, someone's playing a mile a minute and, and impressing you with their virtuosity. But what I want from a solo is a, is a solo that's got melody and moves me and, and I can hum and I can think of as almost a little mini song within a song. And that's definitely the case with this tune. So yeah, look no further. Yeah, exactly. So this, this is a, this is a really strong tune on the album. Um, it is number five on my countdown. All right, good. What do you think I give it? Uh, I can't remember what you, you got to give it number one, I would imagine. Yep, you got it. Yeah. But you know, we're both wrong in our interpretations. It's really about this guy who sits at a restaurant and he just can't connect with the waiter. <laughs> but at the end of the song, he does. And then it's bliss. <laughs> well, what gives me a lot of pleasure is knowing that you're probably relating the song to me now. Now that your relationship with Jen is so strong and, and good, now I'm sure you're waiting by the computer for me to contact you and... I, you must really be going through those emotions waiting for, for the next uh, podcast episode. So that makes me feel good. I'm, I'm, really, uh, I'm really flattered by that, and I'll be thinking about you next time I hear this song. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Tom and Spine, it's Arlen. Just wanted to call in and let you know how much I enjoyed the last couple episodes of The Great Divide. Um, your dissection of Why the Long Face has been really, really interesting to follow both the discussion during the podcast, and then also all the comments that I've seen on the Facebook page subsequent, you know, the uh, the threads on Salem to Nothing on the Facebook page have been really interesting to follow. But anyway, just wanted to throw in a couple of cents on Why the Long Face. When the album came out, you know, out of the box, I loved it, listened to it obsessively. But as the years have gone on, it's sort of worn out its welcome with me to the point that if I'm being honest, it's probably my least favorite of the studio albums at this point. And I think it's because of the missed opportunities that the album represents for me. You know, if you think about it, in the mid-90s, Big Country Alive was probably at the peak of their power. If you go back and listen to uh, Safety Net or Carl's Rue or Brighton Rock or 
uh, even eclectic, they really are at the top of their game. The sets just sort of um, uh, bristle and sparkle with energy. They were also working on some new sonic directions at that point. You know, if you listen to the B-sides of the singles, um, the acoustic direction was really a promising one that I wish they'd explored more. And although I don't know which of the songs on Rarities 2 and 3 were from that era, there were some there that also had a real spark. But the only album that we have to capture that time is Why the Long Face. And I think by comparison to all the things that I just mentioned, I think the album sounds like it was really hard work to make. It, in, in retrospect, it sounds uninspired. You know, to me, literally, it sounds like they really had to sort of gut through it there. And, you know, I think the the album is a big sonic improvement over the demos on Rarity 6. You can tell they really polished it and crafted it as well as they could. But I think that they was a band that was sort of in search of direction at that point. You know, that was the post-grunge era. And so, you know, the... I, whether it was conscious or subconscious, I think they were trying to match the expected sound of the time, which was, you know, a heavier sound, a more simpler power cording. And in achieving that, I think they let a lot of what was distinctive about the band go. You know, by this time, the although there were some really interesting sonic flourishes here and there throughout the album, actually, it wasn't maintained. And so if you compare it, the, the musicianship had evolved completely from the band we all fell in love with. Stewart's singing style had changed. Lyrically, it had changed to a more confessional, observational style that I don't think they'd quite mastered at that point. So when you listen to all of it in total, it just it seems like it was hard work to make and, frankly, hard work to listen to. <laughs> so anyway, though, I just wanted to let you know how much I'm looking forward to hearing the third installment. I gotta hear what you have to say about Charlotte. Charlotte is my least favorite big country song of all time, and I can only wait and hear what you guys have to say about it. Anyway, signing off. Hey Thomas, fine. This is Mark from the UK. Just getting in touch to give you my opinion on Why the Long Face, which is probably one of the more divisive albums from Big Country. My opinion is that it is a fantastic album pretty much full of very strong big country songs and surprisingly for me the reason I love it even more is that when I first heard it when it was first released I actually hated the album and after two listens I don't th- it was probably on a par with No Place Like Home for me I just I couldn't get over it was Stuart's voice that actually I couldn't get over and I think this is the album when they refer to the American twang I think this was the beginning of the American twang for Stuart this was obviously the beginning of the Nashville era some of the songs on this album it just sounded like a different person but the strength of the album is is that on more listens the strength of the songs come through and it is a brilliant album in my opinion and I really don't understand where the strength of hatred comes for this album. It's it's just full of brilliant big country. The second side on vinyl is just incredible, absolutely incredible, and it's got. Well, <laughs> this is this is where it gets very divisive because one of my favourite big country songs, probably in my top twenty, shall I say, is Charlotte. I absolutely adore this song and I don't understand the the negative comments about the, the lyrics I, I, I think it tells a fantastic tale I absolutely love it it's got everything big country all the Ebo the guitars are fantastic 
which you could go for the whole album. That's what I, when you listen back to it, the guitars on this are absolutely incredible. All right, they haven't got the the open string droning of the more familiar big country bad bad bike sound, shall I say? But it's just fantastic. Stuart's obviously loving the, the and Bruce are loving playing on this album, and it's I would go as far as to say it's probably third joint third I'd say in big country albums I'm not going to give them a list because they change but I would say it is definitely top four and and I know that this is going to get a bashing on this podcast so I had to get my defence in I love this album and in fact I'm going to get off this now and I'm going to put it on again and I'm going to listen to Charlotte again because it is an incredible song so looking forward to hearing the podcast this is Mark from the UK signing out cheers Okay, Charlotte, Charlotte, Charlotte. This is the divisive song on the album. Some of you guys just absolutely hate this song. I've, I've even seen comments that I was a little bit surprised about that someone said it was even worse than Eggplant. Kenny yeah. Henderson, are you out there? This song has really taken <laughs> probably as much abuse as Charlotte has taken in this song. Um, basically, it's always boiled down to the lyrics for the detractors, and it's always boiled down to that one section. Now, I have to agree, that is not one of Stewart's finest lyrical moments. Number one, he does something that always bothers me about in lyrics, and that is he rhymes the same word, two and two. I think that's just not really good songwriting necessarily from a lyrical perspective. It can be done, and I think we've even seen examples of it where it's done in a, in a way that kind of works, but I don't think it works there, and I think that's the weakest line of the whole song. But i got to be honest, I really love this song. I, I love the song... Not for the lyrics so much, even though I appreciate some of them and I appreciate what Stuart is trying to do. And I think some of the lyrics are really quite good. But for me, the music is what did it for me. I mean, I, I've gone on and on like a mantra that when I first heard this album and, and back in that time period when I was listening to this stuff, I wanted so bad for Big Country to return to that sound that I loved so much. To me, this is as close as we've we've gotten so far and to Big Country returning to a traditional big country sound. I mean, it's throughout this song. Yeah. And I, I, there's, if you strip away the lyrics of this song and you, and you just put that music out there, I challenge you to say that that does not sound like something that could have been a B-side to a song on The Crossing, um, to anything from that period. I mean, we've got, we've got everything that makes a big country song from that period. We've got Mark's floor tom drumming. We've got um, uh, the first guitar break in this song. I remember telling Stuart this, and I was—I had the privilege of, of uh, when I met him in Nashville. I—I I, I don't know why Charlotte popped into my head, but I just remember saying to him, "I really like Charlotte." And I said that the, that first guitar break, the the guitars on that always reminded me of, of Angle Park, like it could have been something from Angle Park. And I just remember him saying, "Yeah, I could see that." You know, he he wasn't like stunned or anything by that, but I just was—I was happy that I could share that with him. And he's like, "Yeah, I could see you thinking that." And that's kind of how I always viewed this song musically. It, it really 
hit me immediately is like old school big country music. Now therein lies kind of the problem with this song because really the lyrics do not fit the music in a lot of respects because that music is that really big sounding big country music that elevates you and it almost demands one of those quote unquote weighty lyrics from Stewart. In a sense, I would love to see what a traditional big country lyrical approach would do with this song. It, it might have been one of my one of my favorite big country songs because I really do like the music that much. We've got a really interesting little tale here of of obviously the mistress. Charlotte is the mistress of some wealthy guy, and we know he's wealthy because a limousine is mentioned. And I think it's an interesting uh, turn for Stewart, even though I do think some of the lyrics, especially the verse we've already referenced, could have been revised a little bit and and maybe changed around a little bit i do think there's some there's some good lines i think um lines like they saw the world together but always in the dark three hours in the limousine to find a place to park i think that is a fantastic little quartet of lines um and, and he does that throughout this this song kind of comparing things that on the surface seem like they would be great and then coming right back with the a line that says, no, this is actually far from great. It's terrible. And they lived a million miles apart, but only between a dozen blocks. Sometimes she would call him up, but he would never talk. I mean, they, it just, it's a really great way of, of conveying this relationship that just is obviously a mistress relationship, a guy who's probably got a family and obviously got a wife. And this is the woman who's sitting there hoping that one day this guy is going to uh, leave everything and go to her, and obviously it's not going to happen. Now, the other part that people will often criticize in the song is the chorus, and I can understand that too. Charlotte's in her icebox, needs someone to blame, another slice of chocolate cake helps to ease the pain. It's not like those lyrics are necessarily bad, and they certainly reflect the the story that he's telling, but it gets back to pairing those lyrics with the music doesn't really work, and I I acknowledge that. I mean, the music is such that at that point in the song, when I'm singing this song or playing this song and driving or something, I'll often just really be intense, like wanting to pump my fist and sing along to it. And then I'll realize I'm singing about a woman opening her icebox, getting chocolate cake. And I'm like, this something's just not right in this picture because it's just the, – the lyrics don't really jibe well with the emotions that I'm feeling. And I, I'm kind of – almost trying to will into reality these these great classic Stuart Adamson lyrics, but what I'm really singing is not that at all. So are, are you telling me you never put on a dress and head for the icebox? Never. Incredible. Well, well I never head for the icebox anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, so maybe there's something I can relate to in this song. But So yeah, I totally get why people would, would be turned off by that, and, and I'm turned off by it on some level too. But I still think it's a really interesting song overall. Um, the music, as I say, I love music is great. Um, almost maybe, maybe my favorite music, probably my favorite musical portions on this album are in this song. still think it's a flawed song because of the dichotomy between the lyrics and the and the music and it just doesn't quite mix but it's an experiment that I can appreciate and um, even though I have problems with with some of the lyrics I still really enjoy listening to this song and I gotta admit I've always from the very beginning felt this way and I've always been baffled by the 
absolute hatred the song gets. I mean, I completely understand someone not liking it, and I completely understand someone criticizing the lyrics, but with music like that, I just never understood how this song could be hated and reviled by some people as it is. But hey, you know, we all have our <laughs> have our opinions, and they're just as valid as anyone else's. So um, this is a good song for me. This is this is definitely up there. I rank it as number three. That is a surprise. Yep. Yeah, but that's good. Okay. Number three. I'll make a note for that in our secret uh, tally. I kind of see where that is heading. Yes, but, uh, you should know it, by now. You should have it all an, figured out. I do. With that one, I do have it figured out. Uh, but yeah, this is a very interesting song. And I also have an interesting observation. This is the second co-write on the album. Ah. This is written by Stuart and Bruce. And I wonder if this is one of those deals where Bruce actually wrote the music and Stuart contributed lyrics, which would often be the case. And that's interesting in terms of how Celtic the song is. And if Bruce actually is the harbinger here of classic big country, because Stuart doesn't seem to have been in that mindset for this album. So that's just speculating. And uh, if we ever get Bruce back on, if the band still exists when we next uh, get around to talking to him, then we'll possibly ask about that. But uh, yeah, like you, it always amazed me how many people say they hate this song. It really is mind-boggling. And it's it's all because of an icebox and some chocolate cake, as far as I can understand. <laughs> so really? I mean... Um, it certainly can't be about the music. I mean, this is as Celtic as ever, and you said all about that already, the Celtic flavor, the instrumentations, and even the twin bagpipe guitars, the one and only song on Wide Long Face that has them. I mean, to most people, that seems to mean nothing. This is the worst song because they hate the icebox and the chocolate cake. So I've heard about making a point, but that's just uh, ridiculous. I'm sorry. And I think um, this is a song that just got a target and people talk about it. So it's one of those that is on people's mind. They talk about worst songs and Charlotte is so often mentioned that, yeah, how about that Charlotte? It just kind of comes up automatically. There's got to be some reflex and not deep thinking behind it. But um, yeah, let's look at the lyrics. Uh, what are they about and who is Charlotte? And like you said, she is the mistress. She is a woman having an affair with a married man and he buys her gifts. They do things together, but it's always in secret, always in the dark, as the songs say. And uh, yeah, three hours in the limousine to find a place to park. It's, it's the secrecy aspect. Nobody must find out. And it's also interesting how she would call his place, but he would never talk from there. Understandably, <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. uh, and there's an aspect of self-deception here, very strong self-deception. Both the man and Charlotte pretends while they are together, as while he would always talk so nice and she pretended too. So uh, they both kind of, while they are together, pretend that this is, uh, this is it for a few hours. But it's a doomed situation. It's a doomed relationship, if it even is a relationship. But that's perhaps what the pretending is about. And uh, you mentioned the line, they lived a million miles apart between a dozen blocks. I mean, they're not really living that far apart, but they might as well be because she can't go visiting him when he's with his family. And it actually doesn't say if this man is married or if he's another, uh, if he is in another relationship. But I feel it's alluded to by them having to sneak around. He clearly has kids that aren't Charlotte's. Uh, there's no mention of a woman, but she clearly isn't the main person in his life. So that's uh, that's kind of interesting. So the song really isn't rich on details. It gives outlines and you kind of need to fill in the blanks yourself. And that's always something that fascinates me. So that aspect of the lyric snare me in. 
then you have the other aspect that uh, I agree it's not the kind of stuff I expect from big country. And that's something I think you have said for most songs. I haven't said it very often. I will say it about the lyrics to this song. I understand why it isn't everybody's cup of tea. But mostly it's about the distance from the music and the lyrics. It's not because the lyrics are so horrible. It's because the music is so good. The music, uh, if you put instrumental tracks of all the songs, this would be, if not the top, then pretty damn close. I haven't really thought of it in that terms, but uh, that's how good this music is. And um, and uh, at the end of the song, Charlotte knows that this is not working. Things have changed. She has lost him. I feel at the end of the song, it's over. Like they swore things would never change, but now she knows they did. And that is the last real line. And I wonder if that is a realization or if it's the start of something terrible. Because with the feelings of abandonment that Charlotte feels, she goes to that much-hated icebox and digs out that much-hated chocolate cake. And uh, it's an allegory. And I feel there's a lot of tragedy and sadness in Charlotte's life. And she could have done something much worse than heading for the icebox. And I don't want the song to be worse than it is. I'm kind of glad it's the icebox and the chocolate cake and not something else. But... uh, it ends with that realization, and that's either the path to something better, somewhere better for Charlotte, out of the icebox and onward, or it's either deeper into the icebox or something worse. So that ending always is like the, the two-forked path, and which one will Charlotte head down now? So uh, again, it's outlines, and you need to fill in the blanks yourself, and that is uh, something Stuart has to us from time to time, and that is a throwback. So I appreciate that. All the rest of the songs are extremely direct, and uh, he mentions things out. This is an outline song. So from that perspective, there is an element of the lyrics that point back uh, in time also. Uh, as far as the song itself, it's not my favorite on Wide Long Face. It's not even in the top half of my list, but uh, you have to go pretty far down this list before you come to something I don't like. I really like this album. I really like Charlotte. Uh, I certainly don't think Charlotte deserves the worst song tag which has been thrown around. And I honestly think it's about overreacting. And even if you don't like the everyday metaphors, there are plenty of songs with those in them. And those songs are not even close to having such a wonderful music track to back them up. So that uh, that is baffling and interesting at the same time. But at the same time, I, I don't have it as high as you. I have it as number nine. Shut up! Hey, Tom's fine. It's Arlen again. So can we talk about Charlotte for a second? Uh, first off, if this song was based on a real person, then I owe her an apology because of all the terrible things that I have said about her song over the years. And I'm not really sure why I hated this song so much. I think it's because it exemplified for me that the old big country that I loved from the first three albums was never coming back. You know, in those first three albums, big country created a a not just a sonic palette, but also a songwriting template of songs of big ideas, um, outdoors, anthemic type songs. And by comparison, although I supported the the fact that they couldn't keep, you know, singing uh, Restless Natives type lyrics forever, and I, I knew they had to move and evolve to a more confessional, observational storytelling style, for some reason, Charlotte really just crystallized for me how much was missing by that move. Um, and if it, it's not that the music is terrible. It's not that the lyrics are terrible. It's just that there's nothing in the subject matter that appealed to me, that reached out to me. 
Um, even when you read the lyrics, it's a snapshot in time of Charlotte's life. What brought her to that point? What are the lyrics that could have given depth to her character? I just, I really, I really hated that song. So much so that I ended up actually ripping the album and reburning it without that song, just as if I could unmake it by doing it that way. And you know, the funny thing is now, um, because of the podcast here, I've gone back and listened to it, and it's actually not a bad song. It's It's got some some interesting sonic moments, and it's not a terrible song. It certainly doesn't deserve all the abuse I heaped on it, but I'll never like it. I'll never say it's one of my favorites, but to Charlotte and to the song Charlotte, I owe an apology. Thanks. And so we come to Bruce Watson's favorite song from the album. <laughs> when he said that, I think you could actually hear on the podcast how stunned I was. So the first thing <laughs> I will say is, Bruce, if you listen to this, I apologize for what I'm about to say. And in fact, can you just skip the next five minutes, please? Thank you. <laughs> five minutes? Yeah. <laughs> I'll... I'll Okay, the short skip skip the next ten seconds. <laughs> well, okay, just 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 skip it. Stop here. All right. Okay, no. Okay, so we just talked about Charlotte, which is a song that a lot of people have singled out for criticism, and this is what gets me. That song is next to this song, and Charlotte became the target. I mean, in my opinion, post nuclear talking blues is not just inferior to Charlotte, infinitely inferior. It is inferior to every other big country song recorded in the 90s, possibly with one exception. And we are approaching one of the worst songs to recorded on an official album next to You, Me and the Truth. And I will keep calm this time. There will be no excited outbursts. This is a short analysis because the song does not deserve a long one. And musically, this is very far from what I consider big country music. This is more a 12-bar barroom blues folk ditty. This is not big country to me. And you know I have accepted a lot of different music from the band. In fact, I think I am more open to a lot of their more experimental and outer stuff than most people are. So I am not one of those who, and, and this is not a dig at you, you know, not for, well, it is a dig. It's yes, everything, it is. I say, everything I say is a dig, but I wasn't thinking of you when I say that. I am not one of those who need everything to sound like the early albums. And I mean, I've been and continue to be very accepting of all their so-called less popular and atypical moments. So I love No Place Like Home. And as we have established by now, I love Why the Long Face. And I like a lot of Driving to Damascus too, even if some of that material is pushing it. But this song, however, is way beyond what I'm ready to accept. And if they had made an album in this style, I would not even bother picking it up. Okay, that's a lie. Because I'm a completist, but I would not ever play it. And that is not a lie. So uh, I have a short quote from Stuart about this song from the Yorkshire Post in September of 95. And he says, this song is basically just about having a really bad day. <laughs> okay, that's uh, that's about it, Stuart. And it, there really isn't a whole lot of deep thought that that covers it nicely i mean lyrically i sense no depth here these are a collection of throwaway so-called funny one-liners and short jokes put together in one song it is it just boggles me how throwaway it is and it totally sounds like something that grew out of the band just sitting and playing relaxed together and i guess after working on some of the more elaborate things they just sat down to strum and threw this thing together that's totally how it sounds like 
and they refined it a bit and it ended up on the album. And the fact that this is one of the two songs on the album that has a full band writing credit actually underlines this. So I think totally they were sitting there and just came up with it and that's what we have. I'm quite sure of it. But I will give credit where credit is due. There is one good line in the song where Stuart sings... That's actually a great line with significant weight to it. It is just so misplaced in the song. It's like throwing pearls for swine. And unfortunately, it's just part of a phrase. And a full phrase includes that with, he won't even care if his best shoes are full of sand tagged onto it. And that's really unfortunate. It drags the phrase straight down again. But those two lines are good. They are the, the shimmer of, the spark of greatness in this song but the rest of the song definitely seems to follow the someone just having a bad day topic which Stuart talked about and we have some lyrics like whenever my flight touches down my bags are in a different town and the custom men like to get intimate with me I mean what the hell is that about <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if you it's know. meant to be you funny know you know. it's about sex yeah. <laughs> not, not even sex can save this song come on well, he's, no, getting, but, uh, he's getting a good pat down it's uh, <laughs> what he means. Yeah, it's it's. I know what it means. But what? what? <laughs> well, remember, live he used to always say the cuffs customs man likes to get his hands on my ass. He used to always say that live. <laughs> <laughs> well, he finally found a, a song for that story, but unfortunately, <laughs> it wasn't a good song. Or maybe fortunately, if if he was going to put that in a song, it might as well be this one. But some stuff is also just plain awkward. You have lines like "I fall down every time I drink." I wash and all my whites turn pink and I always come home with someone else's pants. <laughs> I, I don't know how Stuart has been able to get away with stuff like this for all these years. I mean, nobody has ever picked up on this and probably because they were still not over the icebox and the cho- chocolate cake from the previous song. I, I don't get it. And let's talk a little bit about Charlotte versus post-nuclear talking blues. I mean, one song has wonderful classic Celtic-inspired music, and the other one is a 12-bar folk bluesy strum, which is nothing like anything the band has ever done before, thankfully. And one song is a sad story about someone wanting a relationship she can't have. And the other thing is a piss-take collection of jokes and one-liners and being felt up by the customs men. I don't get it. Nobody ever singles out this song. And I can only think that Charlotte has a great potential and they bemoan the fact that it didn't come through whereas a song like post-nuclear talking blues has no potential whatsoever so they just write it off that's the only reason i can think of so this is the one song that drags the album down it's a freaking shame so this song is a freaking pile of steaming shit and i rank it as number 14 done <laughs> you practiced that one didn't you no, <laughs> I'm pissed off. I've worked. So you, you already made a hypocrite of yourself. No excited outbursts. You weren't going to get angry. You couldn't I help I'm not it. angry. Oh, come on. You're screaming. You're practically screaming there. It's called putting on a show. Well, listen, I think, you're, I think you are legitimately deranged and insane at this point. You thought this was going to be my 14 too, didn't you? Well, it's not. I actually enjoy this song. I think you're way too hard on it. Now, I think I think the problem that people have with Charlotte versus this song is that this song is so obviously out of the gate, a lighthearted song, like a jokey song. Now, I, believe me, this isn't a song that I'm going to go running to to listen to. And this definitely falls in the in the category of this is not what I want from big country. It, it definitely falls in those categories. When I heard this again, lines like like you, the ones you've already mentioned, especially the one that always 
kind of bugged me was like, I hate to clean up behind my dog. He's a pretty big guy and he eats like a hog. I just thought, ugh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to hear that from Big Country. I don't mind um, more lighthearted song if if there needs to be, but I just didn't like that lyric. And there are other ones on here that I that I didn't really like, but. I was able to give this much more of a pass than you because number one, I do like the music of this song. I yes, it's a it's very much a blues based thing, but I actually do hear some Celtic overtones to it. And and to me, a lot of that is is the mandolin playing. I think the mandolin playing is great on this song, especially in some of the the breakdown sections. to say the expression one more time it's called polishing a turd <laughs> i don't agree i think it's uh it's it's certainly not a diamond but uh i won't go to the other extreme either i i think i think musically it's kind of a nice and i think one of the things that bruce said about this song one of the reasons he appreciated it is because he thought it was a nice change of pace from what had come before and i can see that i think um where it's placed in the album it is kind of like a nice breath of, ugh, you know, this is something a little bit more light. There's and, a stinker, right? <laughs> no, it's, some, it's something more light, and it's kind of like, uh, it, it's, it's, it's just, I don't know. I, I was more willing to accept this um, than you, obviously, uh, for some reason. I, I still am, am not in love with it by any stretch of the imagination. I don't really have a problem with the lines, with the lyrics for the most part, other than the fact that they, they do have that, they're very much about small type of things, and I'm not used to hearing Stuart having songs that are full of puns. But yeah, the rain won't worry a drowning man until his feet are on dry land. He won't even care if his best shoes are full of sand. Great line. Fantastic line. And you're right. The only fantastic line in the song. But um, I, I really just – I've always really liked the production of this song. I think – I love the sounds of the acoustic guitars. I love the, I love the mandolin in it. And I even like the structure of the song musically. I just, uh, for me, it's one of those songs that, if you had taken lyrics, sort of like the lyrics in Start and Crossed, which is a similar type of jaunty feel of a song, and it always kind of reminded me of that type of of, a, of an approach. I think this is not that far removed from Start and Crossed musically. And I think if you would have taken a lyric like that and put it in this song, it would fare much much better. So. That's kind of how I always view this song as like a a poor man's start and cross. So there are things about it that I always did like, um, and I've already said you know it's basically the instrumentation. But yeah, I, I would agree the, the lyrics aren't the greatest. I understand what Stewart's trying to do, and I guess I give him more of a pass because he is obviously just trying to tell jokes th- throughout this this song, and it's kind of giving a side to the sense of humor that he often expressed on stage, but not necessarily. Um, in songs before and we're kind of getting that from him here so while it's not a classic big country song that i would turn to and seek out um i don't at all look at it as as one of the worst songs of the 90s or or anything like that i just think it's like a it's a forgettable song it's not bad to me it's actually like square in the middle of songs on this album it's it's my number seven and uh that's that's mainly for the for the musical flourishes which i actually appreciate so, so suck it's on a, that. 
it's interesting how almost on each and every song so far, you bring up the fact that I want the country to sound like they did. But for this one, you're totally giving it a pass. I don't get it. <laughs> no, I'm not at all. I, because like I said, I think the music sounds like Start and Cross. I do agree. Like I've said, the lyrics are not what I want from Big Country. Musically, I, I feel some Celtic overtones there. I, I like the mandolin and I like the acoustic guitar playing. And like I said on the last episode, don't don't try to figure me out. Just go with it. You'll never figure me out. That's for certain. <laughs> Why don't you just go to the next one? This is too depressing. I am blue on a green planet. Yeah. Well, this is my number 14 song, in case you were keeping score at home. And it's kind of like I said before when I, when I spoke about uh, God's Great Mistake. Just because this is on last place in my list doesn't mean that it's some, a song that I hate. There's not any song that I feel as strongly as, as Fine did uh, as far as disliking, as far uh, that he did on, on post-nuclear talking blues. A lot of these songs are very similar. So it was hard for me to come up with what would take the place of the last ranked song on this album because I felt bad for the song that I was going to rank last but there are some elements of Blue on a Green Planet that I that I like and appreciate but I guess the reason I made it my last choice is that this is a song that really doesn't have much it really really both musically and lyrically doesn't have what I want from Big Country and maybe I'm, I'm more willing to accept post-nuclear talking blues because it it came when it did in the sequence of the album, but then we get another song right after that that is certainly not quite as lighthearted as post-nuclear talking blues, obviously, but it's got some of those types of lines like, my ass is getting pains from sitting on a, on the fence. I'd never liked lyrics like that with Stuart kind of descending into the, you know, just everyday type of vocabulary and lines like that. I just... I always wanted something better from Stewart. This song has a line that really sums up how I felt about this period of the band and or this album. I mean, that second line in the song, we used to sparkle, now we buck without the fizz. That, to me, sums up the way I feel about this album in relation overall, in relation to how it ranks with Big Country stuff. I mean, to me, the Big Country that I loved used to sparkle. Now they buck without the fizz. They still they still can play ferociously. I mean, this song has got is full of ferocious playing. It's full of really excellent musicianship. It's got great um, lead playing. It's got great drumming, bass playing, et cetera, et cetera. But that sparkle is missing for me. That fizz is missing. That's that thing that made Big Country so special is missing. It, this song is kind of pedestrian to me. Um, and really, that when when Bruce revealed that it was really kind of a, a ripoff of the Psychedelic Furs song, whether intentionally or not. I never got that before because I was never a big Psychedelic Furs fan, and I had heard that song, um, what, what was it, Pretty in Pink, I think it was. Um, 
I can't remember the exact song that it was in reference yeah, to. It, it was. Okay, Pretty in Pink. Uh, I'd heard that song on the radio, but I, that's <clears> the only time I ever heard that song. I've never owned a Psychedelic Furs album, so I'd forgotten what that intro was like. But when I went back and saw it, yeah, that's exactly the same intro. You know, whether Stewart did that subconsciously, I'm sure it was subconscious. I doubt he would have willingly done that. But it just kind of gets back to the – it's just like not a very inspired song. And I think the playing is great, but the playing sort of disguises the fact that there's not a lot going on in this song lyrically. There's not um, a lot of great stuff going on musically besides, sure, there's virtuosity on display, but there's nothing in the song musically that really gets me really fired up. I mean, maybe the closest it comes is kind of in the breakdown section when um, he's singing I'm Blue on a Green Planet with you and you've got really nice backing vocals and the guitars are kind of muted and th- th- that's nice. Really, the last thing I'll say about this song is that, again, far from hate this song, far from, you know, feel strongly passionate about this song and that's my problem with a lot of the tunes on this album i really don't feel passionately against any of the songs really uh it's just a song that doesn't do much of anything for me with the exception of me maybe recognizing great musicianship when i hear it and and appreciating that but aside from that it's just not a song i really enjoy listening to and then we've got the blue on a green planet cool quote unquote cool version which uh yeah that's that's something i really don't want to don't want to venture into too often either. So I'd rank that right up there with the one great thing disco mix. Um, let's just let's just refer to it as the uncool version and leave that be with that. Yeah. Okay. In fact, let's just leave leave my critique at that too. So <laughs> I'm done. This is my number fourteen. I can't give it the uh, the punctuation point that you gave yours on post nuclear talking blues, but uh, this is this is probably my least favorite song on the album. You you can't give any song in the universe that punctuation. Oh, in the universe, yes, but in the in the big country universe, probably not. Okay, hold that thought for the Yuletide episode. So, uh, <laughs> Blue on a Green Planet. Um, yeah, this is the second um, song written by everybody in the band. Uh, the first one was obviously Post Nuclear Talking Blue. So that's also the fourth song on this album, not written solely by Stuart. Uh, and I don't know what to say. Um, uh, it's it's uh, well, I'm not going to say far from being my number 14 it is in my lower half but it's kind of like all swen that ends well and i think it well ends reasonably well on a very energetic note um i think just the ferociousness of this song would have uh, fit well on the buffalo skinners it's really ferocious playing and an intense arrangement and uh, the, the kind of thing that still makes me think it wouldn't fit on buffalo skinners is it's kind of by numbers that is my critique against the song. Is it sounds like a bit like by numbers. Uh, it's uh, the guitar solos, everything. It seems to have its place in the song, and it's uh, it's like everything is written and it's played accordingly. I hesitate to use a word like studied. That's a very powerful word, but there's an element of by numbers to some of the arrangement and some of the playing. But also, I recognize the energy. I recognize just the spark and the kick and uh, I like that I, I, I appreciate that um, change is a theme on the album and this song is also about change uh, in terms of 
relationships and people changing and moving on. And like some people say you have to change to stay the same. I guess we tried so hard to stay the same. We changed. It's the line that the album ends on. If you don't count the repeat of the chorus, which is basically I'm blue on a green planet with you over and over again. This this is the last actual line on the album. So that's uh, that's also a point to, to take a note of. So, um, yeah, I don't particularly hate the song it's definitely a thing that uh, uh, it's okay that it's last it's uh, if I stop the album I won't miss it <laughs> so I rate it as number 10 I don't have a lo- whole lot to add to it to what you said it's uh, it, this is um, from 10 down are the songs that I start feeling less passionate about and this is amongst those Shut up! So that is Wide and Long Face, and I have our combined rankings for this album. Okay, go ahead. 14 up. We have Blue on a Green Planet. It's actually the last one. So there's justice in the world for, for you, at least. I'm Not Ashamed is 13, which <laughs> is interesting. Post-Nuclear Talking Blues, again, scrapes by on 12, which is an outrage. <laughs> uh, God's Great Mistake is number 11. Thunder and Lightning is number 10. Message of Love is number 9. Send You is number eight. Sailing to Nothing is number seven. Take You to the Moon is number six. You Dreamer is number five. And Charlotte is number four. Amazing, I have to say, but I'm glad. That so we have some people off. Yeah, some, maybe. So the top three is One in a Million, Wild and Heart, and Far From Me to You is number one. Oh, interesting. As I said, over the years, this, this album has not been a grower for me. It's been a shrinker. But I'm going to read to you a review that I wrote for Why the Long Face in my college newspaper when this album came out. I worked as um, briefly the assistant entertainment editor for this paper. And my love of big country was so great that I was always trying to, uh, you know, kind of champion them whenever I could. So Why the Long Face had come out. And I knew nobody was going to know about this and was going to think about it. I said, I'm going to use my power here, my power, my great um, uh, audience of maybe 100 people. I'm going to expose big country to them. So I'm going to read you my Why the Long Face review as it was written in 1996. February 13th, 1996, this was written. And I have to say there's one little section that is cut off and I cannot read. It's like probably two or three sentences. So I'm going to have to skip that part. So here we go. I'll go, I'll go quickly. It's not incredibly long. Way back in the early 80s, there were three bands, U2, The Alarm, and Big Country, who were regarded as the revolutionaries of a new guitar-driven, spiritually-minded musical movement. While The Alarm no longer sounds and U2 has become a bloated, money-making machine of Hindenburg proportions, (laughs) Big Country has weathered the years with their integrity fully intact, as well as their often peerless, high standards of songwriting. As proof, check out their newest and and possibly best release. (laughs) There you go. Why the Long Face? A collection of 16 songs, and I say 16 because on the U.S. release there were two extra versions, Mm. um, Vicious and In a Big Country, the acoustic version. A collection of 16 songs that that attests to to the ideals and ambitions that have fueled this Scottish band for nearly 15 years. Although Big Country has always prospered in the U.K., which could be argued, most American music lovers remember the band solely for their 1983 smash single, In a Big Country, still a consistent favorite on many alternative playlists. Unfortunately, though, sporadic U.S. touring over the years, as well as a continuing game of musical record companies, has reduced the band's stateside profile to just a notch above obscurity. 
but Scots are known for their perseverance. And with Why the Long Face, Big Country seems intent on reestablishing themselves in a big way on these star-spangled shores. <laughs> wow. I'll tell you, I'm laying it on thick, aren't I? The instrumental ferocity of the album's first single and opening track, You Dreamer, is matched only by the manic desperation of guitarist vocalist Stuart Adamson's lyrics. As in lines like, how can someone find me if no one knows I'm lost? Adamson renders a harrowing tale of lives misspent and potential unrealized. Big Country has dealt with themes of loss and struggle before, but usually from a broader, more worldly perspective. This time, the songs are less anthemic and much more personal, confronting subjects which are rarely considered within rock and roll's often cliched vernacular. Charlotte, for instance, delivers a... And there's where the cutoff comes, and it picks up. Oh, come on. <laughs> I don't know what I said about Charlotte. i got to find it. But I'm assuming I wrote about what we talked about. Charlotte talks about a mistress. And I, I think I remember, actually, I talked about like a, a mistress struggling with – or someone struggling with the weight issues and bulimic possibilities with the chocolate cake and all that. So anyway, and I, I was trying to make a point about how this was something unique to rock music, which it is. Um, and then where it picks up is – also on this menu, the band also manage, manages to offer up the occasional slice of humor. This is the part that's going to make Svein upset. In post-nuclear talking blues, for example, Adamson takes on the character of a com- comical mishap magnet who just can't seem to find his place in the world. I fall down every time I drink, I wash, and all my whites turn pink. I always come home with someone else's pants. As always, Adamson's lyrics are insightful, intelligent, and often quite moving. But the big generator beneath the album is the music. The trademark big country wall of sound is as rousing as ever, led by the innovative Celtic-tinged guitar work of Adamson and Bruce Watson. Tony Butler's majestic bass lines move with the grace of wild deer. (laughs) (laughs) And and the inimitable drumming of Mark Brzezicki is the perfect combination of technical precision and raw aggression. Add some mandolin guest appearances by the Pogues and an all-around superlative production, and why the long face becomes a tidal wave of inspiration and originality in the often stagnant waters of the music world. It's really something to hear. And as a reminder of where newer bands like Live and Superchunk must certainly have derived some of their early inspiration. Okay, and I'm almost finished here. But perhaps writer Martin Scott said it most poetically when in the UK magazine Making Music he stated, This album urinates over most of the newer band's material from a great height. (laughs) I wish I could remember where where I find that quote, but I I guess it was legit. So with Mr. Scott's thought in mind, the next time you purchase the latest release from the newest cardboard cutout guitar band, choosing to once again ignore that beckoning big country band, you might want to remember to wash your hands when you get home. You might also want to remember to keep an eye out for big country's U.S. tour this spring. Their live shows are legendary in the U.K. for good reason. You don't want to miss them. So there you go. You would never have thought that the person who wrote that review would now be reviewing this album the way I am. But uh, I have to admit that I was enamored with the album when it came out, but I also was laying it on a little bit thick there because I was really trying to uh, trying to get people interested in big country. And of course, the U.S. tour never happened. We were thought we thought that it might through stuff that was written in Country Club and never never materialized. And of course, uh, it was kind of a downward spiral there through driving to Damascus as far as their appearances here in the U.S. So, I beat um, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I, I know you do. So even back then, you had pompous leanings, factual errors, and wavering perspectives. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what was my factual error? <laughs> what was your factual error? I had no factual errors. Pompous, maybe, yes. You, I will listen you back slandering, to this. You slandering Norwegian bastard. I will, I, I will listen back to the recording and take careful notes and dissect it. 
Good. That was and my I, plan. I like I like the idea of you doing that. Listen to me. Listen to all my recorded musings and take notes on them. That's what you should be doing. All of them. No, I'll just take, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a masochist. Okay, that's it for episode 29. That's it for the Why the Long Face trilogy. A lot of interesting discussion there. A lot of great speak pipe messages. We really appreciate all the, the uh, speak pipes that you guys sent. Please uh, give us some feedback at bigcountrypodcast.gmail.com or on our Facebook page or anywhere else you can find us on iTunes, etc. So hope you've enjoyed this. We've really enjoyed bringing it to you, and we will see you next time on episode 30, the Yuletide episode of The Great Divide. Thanks. See you soon. This show is awful. Terrible. Disgusting. See you next week. Of course.